It is Calvary's love that calls us to commit ourselves. Calvary's love called 20 of our members to gather themselves together to get on aboard an airplane yesterday and to fly to Belize. Most of us would fly to Belize to go to the beach and enjoy the warm weather. But they go to conduct vacation Bible school, to preach, to share the gospel, to share the gifts that many of our church members sent with them. And this morning as we begin this time together, may we just pray that God's grace is sufficient, that his protection will be upon them. Because you see, it's God's love and Calvary's love that sends them to Belize. But it is that love that calls us on Sunday morning to be in the house of God. It is that love that compels us to share our faith on Monday morning. It is Calvary's love that allows us to forgive one another. May we not forget that love, shall we pray? Father, I ask now that you be with us as we share together with one another from God's word, that you'll lead us, and may we never forget that which you've done for us. For we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. In 1972, Phil Robertson created Duck Commander's Duck Call. And he's sort of a legend in Louisiana. And he played football at Louisiana Tech, just ahead of the Hall of Famer Philip, uh, Pittsburgh Steelers quarterback, Bradshaw. And he got an offer to play with the Washington Redskins right after his junior year, and he turned it down. He turned it down because it interfered with duck season. And he quit football altogether. He just didn't want those big, heavy, vicious, violent guys chasing him down and stomping him in the ground, he says. He's known for his dislike of technology. He confesses that he doesn't have a telephone or a computer. And he's concerned about his grandkids. Have you ever watched the show? He's always wanting to teach his grandkids something. He brings them out to clean a field, but he makes a football, di- a football field afterwards. He teaches his granddaughters how to, how to clean catfish. Because he believes that if the, if the young girls will know how to clean catfish, all of us guys would be looking for them. <laughs> I'm not sure about that. Okay, maybe in Monroe, West Monroe, Louisiana, but I'm not sure anywhere else. He's concerned about his grandkids, that they're becoming yuppies and, you know, that they're just spoiled. And so he's always trying to teach them something about life. And I believe that's the fact that I'd like to look at today because, you see, that's what's happening in 1 Timothy, the 6th chapter. In 1 Timothy, the 6th chapter, Paul's trying to teach young Timothy about life. He's trying to teach him about walking the Christian life. He's talking about there are some things that you need to understand because each and every one of us will find ourselves at that decision point, at that place that we've got to make a decision. And we need to be teaching our kids how do they make the right choice? How do they overcome the peer pressure? How do they get to that place in life that they're going to choose right versus wrong? And we as parents ought to be teaching them that. 
We ought to be teaching them how to do the right thing. Because we are confronted with that every single day. Many of you work in jobs that require you to do certain things that require integrity. How many times has your boss laid a document on your desk and said, sign it? How many times have you had a report that you had to do and you did the famous thing that I call pencil whipping? Have you ever pencil whipped something? Well, I did that. Yeah, I did that too. And I did that, and I did that. And you just initialed off on it knowing good and well you didn't do any of it. It was in your heart to do it. You planned to do it, but you didn't do it. And you just pencil whipped that document just as fast as you could. How do you make the right decision? And Paul knew that Timothy was going to find himself at that crossroads. That there was going to be temptation coming his way. There was going to be opportunities to fail. There were going to be opportunities that Satan would bring in his path to trip him up. And he was going to have to make a choice. And so he teaches Timothy what to do. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. We're going to look at 1 Timothy, the 6th chapter, particularly verse 11 and 12. If you haven't turned there, turn with me now. 1 Timothy, the 6th chapter, verse 11 and 12. And Paul's teaching young uh, Timothy, and he says, But thou, O man of God, referring to Timothy, flee these things and follow after righteousness, godliness, faith, love, and patience, and meekness. Fight the good fight of faith. Lay hold on eternal life, whereunto thou art also called, and hast confessed a good profession before many witnesses. Notice what he says. He says, Paul, you're the man of God. You need to flee. And when you look at the word flee in the uh, Greek, you understand that it is a present imperative verb. And it says, commanding us to continue the action. I want you to continually flee. Don't do it just once. Run. How many times have you taught your kids to run? Most of us are saying, no, stand up. Stand up. Stand up for your rights. But you know, there are times we need to run. Run fast. Get out of there. You're in the wrong place at the wrong time, and you need to run. Most of us say, no, I'm strong. I'm a Christian. I can overcome. I can defeat this temptation. And we stand. And what happens to us? We fall. And so he says, flee. Flee the false doctrine, and he's talking about it and referring to, as you look at uh, verse 11, he says, flee these things. And what is he talking about? You have to go further up in the passage of Scripture, beginning with verse 3, and you have to realize that Paul has said a number of things, and that he's referring back to those. And in verse 3, he says, we need to flee from those that are teaching false doctrine. We need to run from those. If any man teach otherwise and, consent, and consents not to wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, and to the doctrine which is according to godliness. He says we need to flee from those that are teaching false doctrine and particularly wholesome words. 
Flee from those who are negative. Flee from those that are destructive. Flee from those that are using and, and using words that are unhealthy words. And when you talk in the Greek, he talks about unhealthy. How many times have we been around people that are unhealthy in their language? That they are bitter. That they are critical. That they're destructive. Have you ever had someone throw a dagger of words into your heart? I hate you. I never want to see you again. I despise you. Get out of my life. I hate you. Why do you think teenagers tell their mom and dads they hate them? Why did you tell mom and dad you hate them when we were teenagers? I hate you and I want to leave here. I'm leaving now. And when I get out of here, I'm going to do what I want to do. Yeah, we do, don't we? We've said it a gazillion times. And I think it's pre disposed in each teenager to say that to their parents sometime in their life. But those words are hurtful, aren't they? James, the third chapter, verse 5 and 6 says, Our tongue is full of deadly poison. It's amazing. You don't have to take a gun. You don't have to hit somebody with a baseball bat. Our tongue can hurt far deeper than we can imagine. And Paul says, flee from those people. Get away from that. Run. He says, flee from those who reject the word, the doctrine of our Lord Jesus Christ. Second Peter, the second chapter, verse 1 through 3. In Second Peter 2, he says, but there were also false prophets among the people, just as there will be false prophets among you. They will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the sovereign Lord who brought them and bring to them swift destruction. May we, follow their, may we follow their shameful ways and will bring the way of truth into dispute. In their greed, these teachers will exploit you with stories they have made up. Paul's saying, they're among us. There are those that read scripture and go, I just don't believe that. There are people that read scripture that says, thou shalt not lie. And we go, oh, but... You know, we all have to say something sometime, you know. The Lord really didn't mean, thou shalt not lie, did he? But just a little one, that'd be okay. Just what we now classify the white lie, that's okay. You know, as I read scripture, it's pretty clear to me. He didn't give any parameters. He says, thou shalt not lie. But we in our society take God's word and we like to interpret it. And we like to expand it. And we like to cut off those parts that we don't like. Love your husband. Wow. Love your wife. Take care of them. Encourage them. Be part with, partners with them. He says, flee from those that would reject the doctrines according to holiness and to godliness. Those believers that find themselves puffed up in their faith, find find themselves puffed up in their religion, he says that we ought to resist and move from them. We ought to flee from that divisive attitude. 
those that are divisive, uh, divisive in all that we say and do, that is characterized by envy, strife, and malicious talk. You know, there are people among us that would like to divide us, that, like, that would like to divide us by race, that would like to divide us by our accents, that would like to divide us by the school that we went to, that would like to divide us by the amount of money that we possess, that would like to divide us by our cars and what we drive, that would like to divide us by what we wear. And God's saying that we ought to resist that division. We ought to resist those that would divide us and separate us when we are the body of Christ, that we are one, that we are solely committed to the purpose of Jesus Christ, and that we ought to join hands together and be one in our service before him. Neither male nor female, neither black nor white, neither Jew or Gentile, but one in the body of Christ. And resist those. And flee from those that would say, no, you're a conservative. Or no, you're a liberal. We ought to serve Jesus Christ. He says that you ought to flee from those that look at the love of money in verse 9 of chapter 6. Those that love money. You know, money has a way of just getting into us, doesn't it? Money has a way of grabbing our souls and our hearts and controlling us. And he says that we ought to resist that love of money. That we ought to resist that and that we have needs. And you know what? I find that my needs grow as my income grows. Did you know that? My needs grow as my income grows. Where I used to be able to live on $30,000... I now have to have $40,000. And then I have to have 60. Then I have to have 70 and 100 and 150. And 150 is not enough. I need, you know, my dad looks at me and he goes, "Well, what's your income?" And I went, "You don't want to know." And he goes, "Why?" Because you will wonder why in the world, you know, I have any needs in my life at all. Love of money grabs us. It grabs me when I buy stock. Okay, I can't buy stocks. I really can't. Because when I buy stocks, I expect them to grow tomorrow. Okay, they got to grow tomorrow. And if they don't grow tomorrow, you know, they need to grow the next day. And if they go down, I always have hope. I always have hope. It's going to pick up tomorrow. It's going to pick up tomorrow. It lost 3% today, it'll pick it up tomorrow. And it lost 10% the next day. And it lost 15% the next day. It's going to come back, okay? I know it's going to come back. And I keep, keep, you know, when it gets down to $1.50 a share, you know, you start going, well, maybe, maybe it's not going to do that. But the love of money gets in our lives and it controls us. And we lose the thought that Paul is trying to tell us here of sufficiency and contentment. What makes us content? How can we live in that spirit of contentment? 
How can we live there full in the grace of God, satisfied by what he provides us, satisfied in that he meets our needs every single day, that when we wake up, we have our health. He provides our food. He provides our clothing. We are sufficient in God Almighty. But we want more. And Paul says, flee from that desire of money. Have we fled from the doctrine and hungered after truth? Have we fled from those that would bring evil and bring strife and division among us? Have we been seeking the peace? Are we fleeing from the love of money and resting in God's sufficiency? But notice the second thing that he says there. He tells young Timothy, I want you to follow. I want to follow virtues. He says there in verse 11, he also talks about chasing after. And when I look at following and I understand the Greek concept of chasing after, I realize that God is trying through Paul to tell us that we ought to chase after, not just follow. Some of us follow just in line. We get in line and we go wherever the line takes us, right? We just follow. Blindly, but God is saying more here to Paul, uh, to Timothy through Paul than just follow. He's saying chase after. Chase after righteousness. Chase after right living. And there is a right in this world. Many in this world today would try to tell us there is no right or wrong. There is no moral standard. There is nothing to say this is the way you ought to go. And we as Christians and we as believers say no. We resist that. We say there is a moral standard. That there is a standard by which we ought to live by. There is a canon. There is something that we ought to place our flag in and say this is right. There is right living. And when there is right living, there is also wrong. And we don't like to think about it that way. But God says there is a right. And we ought to chase after the right. The problem in our society today is it's confusing. Because we've overshadowed it. I've seen and talked to uh, supervisors who said, well, that's a moral judgment. We're not going to make that. God's word makes that decision, doesn't it? God's word has said this is right and this is wrong. God has said it's wrong to steal. It's wrong to take from those that have just because you think you want it. There is a right living. He says chase after godliness. Chase after godliness that is a reverence before him. Chase after godliness that brings that contentment. Chase after the love, agape. Chase after God's love. We've talked about Calvary's love today. And here Paul is telling young Timothy, chase after God's love. Because you see, when God's love comes into your being, it's not a question of are you going to forgive. It's a question when are you going to do it. Because God's love is going to wrap you up and hold you tight and compel you. His spirit is going to convict you. How many times have you gone to bed knowing good and well that God's saying, you ought to say you're sorry. You ought to, you know, 
You've been living on that couch for how long, right? You ought to get up from there and say you're sorry. You need to be able to get out of that pouting mode. You're walking around. You know, some of you don't talk. When you get mad, you just shut up. You know it drives the other person crazy. And you do it on purpose. God's love will convict you of that. He's not going to let you walk along. And you need to obey him because his spirit's got a hold of you and shaking you just as hard as he can, saying, you need to forgive. You need to make it right. You need to stop this. You need to get over your pride. You need to get over all that is around you. You need to get down and say, I'm sorry. Renew that relationship. Heal that relationship. But always say, God, you don't understand. You don't understand what they've done, Lord. They've they've betrayed me. And God's spirit comes back and says, but I forgave you. But I forgave you. I forgave you of all your sins. All that hiddenness that you had in that closet that your mom didn't know about, that your dad didn't know about, that your wife and your husband didn't know about, that your kids didn't know about, all that ugliness, I forgave you and made you whole. Chase after love. He says not only chase after love, he says chase after patience. Chase after that perseverance and amidst the trials, the patience that you have to have, that you just don't let your emotions run wild. He says, chase after meekness, a calmness of mind. He says that we ought to chase today. The question for us is, what are we chasing after today? Are you chasing after that promotion? Are you chasing after that relationship that just seems to be escaping you? Are you chasing after a success? Are you chasing after another badge? Are you chasing after another title? God says, chase after right living. Chase after my love. Chase after my meekness. Notice the third thing. He says that we ought to fight the good fight. He says, keep on fighting. This is not a one-round fight. This is a daily, a daily confrontation with Satan. A daily confrontation with temptation. A daily confrontation with evil. A daily confrontation with that that would drag us down and would muddy us and would destroy our relationship with God. A temptation that will take us and alienate us from those that are around us. He says, fight the good fight. Keep in that fight. It is a competitive fight. It is after a prize. We as Christians don't talk about the prize. We think, well, just get saved and you'll get heaven and that's enough. He says that I have a crown of righteousness to give. That he has a crown of a blessing to place upon his saints. This is a battle going on. And if you're not in the battle, you're sitting in the tent. And you need to get out of the tent and you need to get in the war. It is happening all around you. He says, fight the good fight. And he uses an athletic concept here. An athletic concept that says, there's going to be struggle. 
You just don't get on that football field without practice. You just don't run those plays without running them over and over and over and over and over and over and over again. You can't hit that golf golf ball by simply going out once a month. If you do, come and tell me how you do it. Because I can't do it. Okay? And it's great to play golf, you know, get out there and buddies are with you and they're helping you out. You know, well, you need to back up a little bit, and you back up a little bit. It makes it worse. Well, you need to tuck in your, you know, your elbows, and you're tucking in your elbows, you know, and you're standing like this. You're doing everything everybody tells you to do, and by the time you end up the 18 holes, you're so messed up, it's unbelievable. But you see, it takes that struggle. It takes that practice, you know. I used to coach basketball, and it was, well, you know, practice makes perfect. No, Perfect practice makes perfect. Okay, you, you got to do it the right way. You got to practice the right way. If you just practice for the sake of practicing and you're practicing the wrong way, guess what? You're going to do it the wrong way. And so Paul telling Timothy, he says, you need to get in this war. You need to get in this conflict. You need to be that athlete. You need to be practicing. You need to be building up. You need to get in the struggle. But then he turns and he also uses a military uh, concept of a struggle. And there he talks about getting injured. You know, because when you get in this war, you get wounded. Satan is throwing darts at you, and you get, you get tired, and you get weary, and you let your guard down, you see, and you lose focus. What happens when you lose focus? <laughs> In November, right before Thanksgiving, a young Tiger Woods lost focus. Okay, well, he lost focus years and years before that. But that lack of focus came to head real quick, didn't it? Probably with a club to his Cadillac. We lose focus. It's easy. It's lo- we can lose it athletically, and we can lose it militarily. And we get injured, and we get in that battle. I was at the hospital in Anaconda. It was one of the major hospitals for the wounded in Iraq. And my... My hooch was right at the edge of the hospital. And so every night, the Blackhawks would come in. And all day long, they would come in. And they would land just outside my hooch. And they would carry the wounded into a hospital that looked like MASH, okay? It looked like MASH. It was almost a tent hospital. And you would go in there, and we would try to keep them only long enough to stabilize them, and then we would move them out. The wounded, the broken, the families that were broken. The battle is heavy, ladies and gentlemen. It's intense. And you know Christians that have been wounded. You know Christians that are broken. You know Christians that were leaders in this church that won't darken the church door. You know people that live beside you every day 
that used to be involved, that used to serve, that used to teach. I know preachers who used to preach, but they're wounded. They're tired. They've lost focus. Paul is saying to Timothy, you've got to get up. You've got to get bandaged up. You've got to get healed by the salve of the Holy Spirit of God. And he can do that. Because you see, he says, at the end of the battle, there is what we call a tour award. Okay? So after you spent your year, your 18 months, guess what happens? We have a ceremony. Okay? Everybody comes in and they all sit down. You know, the general walks in, you know, his sergeant major standing beside him. We're all standing there. And guess what he starts to do? He starts calling people's names, and he's reading these certificates, and he's pinning on them medals. You know, when you stand before God and when I stand before God one day, what's he going to say? Well, I see that you got wounded back there when you were 20-some years old, and you just quit on me. I see that, well, you worked in the church, and you did well, and you served God, and you witnessed and all that. And then when you got through that divorce, you just went, God, I can't do it anymore, and you quit on me. Well, I see that you served the Lord, you taught Sunday school, you worked with the kids. When your kids got through, you quit. You quit on me. I see that you worked with me, you got saved, you you taught Sunday school, you were a deacon in the church, you did all kinds of things, you witnessed for me on the job, but then when you became a senior, you went, well, you know, I can't do it anymore. And I'm one of you, so I can speak to it. You quit on me. It's going to be a great day, but it's going to be a sad day, isn't it? Of all the things that we could have done for God. That we should have done for God. But notice what Paul says. Paul says when this temptation comes, run. He says, follow, chase after me. And he says, get into this battle. And get into the conflict. Knowing good and well, you could be wounded. Knowing good and well, it's going to be hard. Knowing good and well it's going to be difficult. But serve me. Serve me with all your heart and all your mind. Don't get distracted by your job. Don't get distracted by the family issues that are always going to be there. Those decisions are always going to have to be made. But follow after me. Make it so that your children know that when they come to your house on Sunday morning, they better bring their church clothes. Because guess what we do on Sunday morning? We go to church. Do your kids know that? Bring your church clothes when we go to the beach, because guess what we're going to do? We're going to find that church, and we're going to church. Now, you see, in my case, I just preach to them. Uh, We go to church. We go to church. They hear me enough. They want to hear somebody else. But get in the war. Get in the battle. Get in the game. Okay? We don't need any any more journalists. Okay? 
We don't need any more has-beens telling us how to work the game. We need to get in the game and do it. Are you doing what God asks you to do? Are you serving him? Are you committed to him? Are you chasing after him? Shall we pray? Father God, I ask now that you be with us as we serve you and as we seek after you. Father, may we chase after righteousness. May we chase after that which you have for us. And Lord, if there be one here who may not know you as Lord and Savior, may they make that decision today. May they follow after you. May they obey the leadership of the Spirit of God in their life. And Lord, there's Christians here today that you're speaking with and that you're moving upon. Lord, may they ignore the pressures around them. May they ignore the, the temptation of Satan to say, sit right where you're at. Don't move. It doesn't make any difference. Father, may they obey you and may they leave their pews and may they make that decision that they need to make this morning. Encourage us as we serve you. For we ask it in Christ's name. Amen.